Make it, make it real to us. Uh, make your word um, remarkably clear. And uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Uh, amen. Amen. So I want to uh, encourage you uh, that God is uh, able to be with you in, in hard emotions. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I attended a conference on the mainland, uh, a gathering of Christian counselors, uh, and the subject was emotions. And so uh, emotions have been on my mind uh, since that conference. It was a really well done conference by a group called CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. And so I want to talk to you as we go through the, the, um, the Advent season, I want to talk to you about um, Advent through the eyes of the Psalms. Actually, I got this idea from a church in Michigan that they'd done this kind of series, and it, it intrigued me, the ad, Advent through the eyes of the Psalms. And so what we try to do here as a church, in case, uh, just trying to get oriented here, we believe that the whole of the Bible speaks about Jesus, the whole of the Bible. And so we, if we are preaching in the Old Testament, we want to see Christ in that passage. So we want to preach Christ in all of the Bible. Um, so the Psalms are this uh, collection of 150 uh, songs of Israel. And we're looking at actually uh, a psalm today that was part of a collection of about 25 psalms. And the ascription is given uh, to the, the sons of Korah. And um, so the, these may have been uh, choir leaders, song writers, psalm writers. And uh, so there's about 25 of them that are attributed to this group of writers. And so this is Psalm 40, 42, and Psalm 42 connects with Psalm 43 in that they're almost very similar in the, the cry of the soul, the cry of the soul. As we look at Christmas, uh, we look at the idea of, of some, some classic imagery perhaps comes to mind when you think of Christmas. Uh, I'm not sure what comes to mind in your, in, your, in, your, in your memory. What do you see by way of the, the stories from Scripture, uh, the early chapters of the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 and 2. But the imagery, perhaps you, uh, you see um, the shepherds who are stunned uh, by the angels' song on that, on that hillside. Perhaps you see and remember that prophetess named Anna who was seemed to be alone most of her life waiting for the, the announcement of the coming of Jesus. Or Simeon, the older man who comes into the temple after Christ is born and he gets to, to see the Christ child and then at that point he realizes that his lifelong wish and dream had come true and that he was ready now to die. Do you see Mary talking to Gabriel, the angel, the, the magnificent angel, Gabriel? Do you see Mary calmly receiving the life-changing news that she will bear the Christ child? What do you see in your minds 
mind's eye. All of us have a great deal in common with these people, this small band of people who had a sense that something was up and were waiting and longing for the redemption that had not yet arrived. And they knew that the Old Testament story was incomplete. And it wasn't enough just to have the temple up and functioning. It wasn't enough just to have sort of religious things going on. They knew that the world was a troubled place, a difficult place, a place where sin and death reigned, and God had promised to bring a Redeemer. And so they were waiting for this remarkable moment, and they, they were allowed to see it. One other individual, the father of that preacher, prophet, the baptizer, John, who was related to Jesus, John the Baptist, we call him, right? His father, Zechariah. And in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah describes what it means that John has been born into the world. He says because of, this is chapter, chapter 1 of Luke, verse 78, because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us. Isn't that beautiful, that imagery? The dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide us to the path of peace. See, I would uh, contend that Advent does not make sense unless it really speaks to the real issues of life. It's not enough to have jolly old Saint Nick show up. But that is a momentary sort of bit of happiness. It's a folk legend. But it is, of course, not at all the biblical story. And much of what we would say as Christmas is associated with really fleeting or passing emotions, and I would say all of you are too sharp, too experienced, too knowledgeable, and perhaps, I would say, too wounded by life. You know that the cookies are fun, the events are fun, but there's something going on where you want much more of a substantial communication from God about where you really live, about where you really hurt, and what really matters to you. And Zechariah, I think, now there's many, many insights into the human condition. Zechariah, when he's, he's excited about the birth of this, this prophet son that he has, and he's the one who says, you know what? He's come for people who sit in darkness. I don't think that's going to make a Hallmark card, is it? sit in darkness. In fact, it goes even beyond that, and they are in the shadow of death. Aren't you glad you came to church, right? Sometimes, it's interesting, I, I, I was a early, or my early days in college, I was trained in theater, and, one of, and my, my, uh, my theater, theater, the main theater professor I followed or worked with, he was talking about script writing, and he said, look, if you ever are going to write a script, do not do not write what is true about what happened. Don't base it on something true. You have to adjust the truth. You better change the truth because the truth is so real, no one will believe it. 
quite a statement, isn't it? So every, in a sense, every movie, it could have some, some tragic things happen in it. It was actually worse than that. How about that? That the, that the writer and the screenwriter and these people have to adjust things because reality is so crazy, off the charts, insane, that you just won't ever be able to sell anybody on that idea. Now, that's where we live. Zechariah lived in this reality of a shadow of death. And, and Advent better speak to that, or, you know what, let's just turn the lights out and go home. Advent better speak to our real, where we really, really live. And the longer you have lived, okay, the longer you have lived, the more deeply is your aware, the more deep you are in your awareness. This needs to speak to where I really live. And I would suggest, what about the darkness that are in emotions? This is a figurative language, right? Darkness. What's he, how's he using this word? It's figurative. It's poetic. Darkness of what? They, sit, they live in darkness. What kind of darkness? Well, things are troubling. Things are hard. Things are difficult. I don't know if I feel God's face shining upon me. How many of those that I listed in the early stories of Jesus, the, the birth narratives, how many of them had dark emotions, had difficult experiences in life? How hard life was. This psalm we're looking at is a person who is suffering. They need redemption. They need relief. Now, this psalmist here, the the one who composed this, they had, a, they had a, at least probably a tabernacle functioning. They may not have the, t the temple at this time, but they, they had a place of worship. They had a, it was a kind of a, a tent structure, right? Some of you are familiar with that tent structure with the, with the place of worship where the, the priest would apply the blood once a year on the Day of Atonement. They had, they had a, a way of heading into Jerusalem and to experiencing the at least where God said he located himself, where he, he was. They had that. This, the writer had uh, an organized uh, country, a called-out people. Well, they had God's promises. And this person is crying out, why is my soul cast down within me? They do not feel God's presence, and they are suffering. And there's no other comfort. There's no other comfort that is going to work for them other than the presence of God. Ask yourself this question. Is that where you are? Have you ever, in your thinking and in your life, become aware that the comforts you enjoy, yeah, I'm glad I have them, but they're not working. The things I experience, I'm glad I do. They're, they're, they're nice, but they don't work because you have been made to delight and to be satisfied in God alone. So here's the problem. Through finite things, we are trying to experience what can only be truly experienced through the infinite. This is why 
you may be making a special recipe, that special cake you make, that special something you make, but you've made it nine times, and it now is growing a little bit tiresome for you. It doesn't have the pop. It doesn't have the excitement. This is simply life. There's nothing wrong with you. This just means that you're trying to find comfort in places where there will not be the kind of comfort you need. This psalmist needs God to arrive. Even though they have the tabernacle or the temple, even though they have the, the structures of what would you'd see that God should be present, they want God to be present in a way that dispels the darkness they're experiencing. This is a remarkable passage. First of all, it gives us freedom to really talk to God. It gives us freedom to really honestly talk to God. It's also very hopeful because the psalmist is actually, they, are, they keep going at it. They keep going at it. They are going to pursue hope. They are not giving up. It is not a downer psalm. It's not a depressing psalm. It's a psalm of a person who may be experiencing a kind of depression, but they are fighting and they are moving in a particular direction and they are saying to themselves, hope again in God, you will rejoice again. Things You will recover. You will recover. And so it's a beautiful thing that we have this psalm that talks so honestly about our sufferings. Ed Welch, the Christian counselor, who said, he says, sufferings nag us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. Are you asking questions of God as we begin this Advent season? I hope you are. Let me just move uh, briefly through the psalm itself. I'm going to call, call this writer the singer, the singer. The singer, look at verses 1 through 3, just briefly with me. Verses 1 through 3, the singer says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That is an animal that has not had water in days. You ever seen that? The mouth is open, the tongue is out. That is a, an animal near death. The animal is panting to find life-giving water. And that describes what this, this singer is saying. This is, so my soul pants for you. He's, he's made his soul into a kind of, have a human quality. Or a, 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 his soul has, an, well, in this case, an animal-like quality. My soul, verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Appear before God that I know he's present with me. And here's the description of his emotional life continuing. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Somewhere in this person's life were people who were taunting him, Perhaps at some point in his life he had boasted great things about God and God's presence with him. And now he says that I am under this shaming taunting. And look at verse 4. 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul. So he's rehearsing. Have you ever done this when you're feeling, feeling sorrowful? Do you rehearse things in your mind? The answer is yes. You're trying to make sense of them. You're rehearsing them. Remember, there's, it's, it's kind of a continuing loop. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. The soul is being poured out. Was this the, was this the experience of the small band of believers who were in on the announcement of Jesus arriving? Where is my God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. The singer, the singer is remembering that he thirsts like an animal. He's panting in emotional pain. And this pain is due to the feeling of the absence of God. That's the pain. The pain is due to the, the feeling of the absence of God. Could we be a Psalm 42 church? Do you feel like you could be a Psalm, that you could express something like this in church? Church has got this sort of formalism to it, right? I come to the service, I sort of listen, I appreciate what's going on, I hear a sermon. But to engage in friendships, to engage with your elders, to begin to ask, oh God, can you help me speak more openly and freely to my church friends, my church body? This is where I live. There's a Swiss uh, physician and counselor named Paul Turnier. Very popular back in the 1960s. Paul Turnier said this remarkable little line. He said, we live in our feelings. That's it. We live in our feelings. If we as a church, is that true? We live in our feelings. So let's do a little more living then. Let's do a little more living. They are suffering here. And they are remembering verse 4. I used to lead the procession of people into Jerusalem to the center of worship. I used to lead people in song. I used to be happy and emotionally up and had a sense that God was with me. I used to be joyful in my worship of God as I joined others. And then verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And though... We have now the self talking to the soul, the mind perhaps talking to the soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Paul Tripp reminded us recently at the, at the Overflow Conference that the one that we talk to the most is ourselves. Here's someone talking to themselves, and they are counseling themselves, they're preaching to themselves. Why are you so without any hopeful resources? Why are you without a promise from God? Why are you so despondent? Why are you feeling so alone? Why are you feeling so, so abandoned? 
And you can hear the ref- in the mind of the, the singer, this isn't true. This isn't true. You know the great promises of God. You know God's promise to be with you. And you can hear all the theology and all the statements, but the experience, the experience and what we know have to line up. Otherwise, we are disquieted. We are restless. We are unsure. It's hard for us to not, uh, let me put it this way. You can't go a long time being unhappy. You might turn to cake. You might turn to, in other words, it's hard to go a long time being unhappy. You want to be happy. That's an impulse. That's a desire. That's a place you want to live. It's hard to not to experience. And if your emotional life is connected to the presence of God, that this is something important to you, you want this. You want his presence with you. And so there is a repeated refrain, my soul is cast down within me. Look at verse 6. And so the, the psalmist here is trying to remember good things. And so look at verses six. Uh, let's look at verses six. Now he turns to real estate, and he, he the singer begins to recount the beauty and the expansiveness of God's territory that He had given Israel, Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizar, and these are just perhaps they're familiar to you. It's just basically he's he's drawing on. So what can help me? be restored in God's goodness. And so he throws that out there. Then he he turns in verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, the magnificence of of roaring waterfalls. In other words, this is an individual trying to to capture the majesty of God again. God's present in the water. God is is, uh, wonderful in his power in, in, in the waterfalls that I've seen. And then that imagery actually doesn't stay around very long in the person's mind because then he turns into the idea of waves, all your breakers and your waves. Uh, And the expression here is not that it's good, they have gone over me. In other words, when I think of water, I can't stay very long on the image of waterfalls. I think of water falling on me. I think of water crushing me. I think of water coming over me. You can, see, you can feel the struggle of this, of this individual. And then, he, then he, the, the singer turns in verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. He's reaching out. He's trying to find consistency. Look at the sun as it rises every day. And that can be actually a way to be restored. You look at creation and God is still maintaining things. And that can be a wonderful, restore, have restorative power. Look at the, the day. And at night, his song is with me. It's like he is singing with me the beauty of the the created stars, the magnificent planets. And these function like a prayer to the God of my life. I I, I respond to his song in in prayer. And I say to God, my rock, what do I say? And he still can't get rid of the reality that he doesn't feel God's with him. Look at this. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, 
My adversaries taunt me. You know what the message is here? If you don't show up in my life, I'm going to die. I want to propose to you that's exactly what the small band of people in Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, begin to see of the coming of Jesus. If you don't send your Messiah, we will forever be apart from your presence. We will live in this valley of the shadow of death. We will die. Oppression, oppression. Oppression from enemies here in this psalm. Oppression is a theme from Advent. It's a theme from those who, uh, who are anticipating the coming of Jesus, to be delivered from their enemies, to be delivered from oppression. It's a, it's a significant theme in Mary's song. The poor will be lifted up. And then Psalm 42, 11. There's one last run at it here. Look at verse 11. He's not, he's not, the singer's not done. Look at verse 11. One more time. <laughs> why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And here's the trajectory of the heart. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. John Calvin said that um, many things about the Psalms. He said that the Psalms teach us about bearing our cross. And of course they do, but they also point to the one who did bear our cross. We enter into the Advent season and we remember what we needed. What did we need? We needed someone to fix the core issues of this existence. Someone to comfort us at a depth and a level where we often do not want to think or to go. As much as we are entertained, satisfied, comforted, experienced, whatever is going on in our life, as much as we have those experiences and things we know something and we cannot unknow it. We know our life is finite. We know something is fundamentally wrong. And we need relief. We need comfort. We need God's presence. And is this not the great truth that comes with Advent? Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus. Why do you call his name Jesus? He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the answer to Psalm 42. Ed Welch, one more time, he says, one thing we know about being downcast is that, listen to this, that left to itself, the soul can only see the worst and is almost impossible to interpret. If you are downcast apart from the gospel, if you are downcast apart from God's revelation, 
then you have no way to interpret the events of your life. No way to make sense of them. No way, no place to put hope. That is going to comfort you. No place. You have no way to interpret. And Ed Welch continues, as such, this simple reflection, meaning the practice of reflection, it is, it is impossible for us to do alone, but it is very possible with God's power. What a gift this is, and here it is, to slow down that runway train of despondency. Our gathering together today is a slowing down of realizing, wait a minute, I'm not alone. God has given me his, his spirit. Sometimes my awareness of his spirit's presence with me comes and goes, fluctuates. But the gathering of his people together, the gathering of his church, hearing the means of grace, the preaching, the Lord's Supper, experiencing this, these are God's normal ways of assuring you that there's a way to interpret your life. What is that way? It's the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Take your sorrows, take the soul that's cast down within you, and, and put before it the events of Jesus. Put before this soul that's cast down the work of Jesus. Put before the soul that's cast down the beautiful person of Jesus and wait and wait and talk to your soul and talk to your soul for you will again hope in God. You will again hope in God. Such is his marvelous grace to you that actually that hope is to be abounding in you. That hope is to be abounding in you. So this is, I'm encouraged, I'm excited to go through this Advent season with you. Um, it would not surprise me that you'd like to talk to someone, to process this, to figure out, Psalm 42, that's me. How do I, how do I work through this? And to experience God's loving kindness in friendship within the church. And so let me pray for us. Father, the cry of this psalm is that I shall again praise him. Father, did Jesus say something like that? Abandoned on the cross? Did he refuse to interpret his experience on the cross without you, without your promises? Would he interpret the things he experienced on the cross through the Romans who yelled at him, through the religious officials who mocked him, through the crowds that jeered him? Is that how he would interpret, interpret his life? Or would he interpret his life through you and your promises, Father? Father, thank you that you have given us the lens of Scripture to interpret our lives, that we could see Jesus, our marvelous Savior, patient and kind to us, 
speaking to the place where we live, speaking to the darkness of our emotions, speaking to this realm. Father, it is a realm of sorrow and death. And he speaks to us with resurrection words. Oh, be our king among us, Lord. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.